Good evening. Hope you've had a wonderful day and a week so far and are excited to be here tonight as we continue our journey through the book of the prophet Habakkuk. And as we have mentioned in both our previous weeks, Habakkuk is considered a minor prophet because of the shortness of the letter of its prophecy, but he is not small or minor in importance. Habakkuk is one of the most important prophecies. I've said that now for the previous two weeks, but I pray tonight we'll see why I say that. As you begin to look at what his message is and what God says about the message of Habakkuk, we will see that God considers this to be an incredibly important prophecy. And so I want us to see that tonight. Just to remind us of where we're at, Habakkuk was a prophet called to a people right after there had been a great reformation, Josiah's reformation, the tender-hearted king, and things had fallen apart very quickly. And God was going to bring judgment upon his people as he had long said he would. And so Habakkuk comes not as a prophet to send the message that it can be avoided at this point. It is inevitable. God has declared it shall come to pass. But then again, Isaiah had prophesied, hadn't he, uh, that it would come to pass and that God would preserve a remnant through that judgment. So Habakkuk again comes to the same point. But he cries out in despair as he sees what goes on in Judah. This is supposed to be the people of God, the, the land that God had given his people, the, the great city of Jerusalem here, and yet everywhere he looks it is sin, iniquity, violence. He cries out, O God, how long will I cry out to you and you not answer? How long can I cry out to you violence and, and you do not save? And we've looked at this over the previous two Wednesday nights. He cries out not only that there is sin, not only that there is widespread idolatry and ungodliness, but there is violence. And yet he feels as though God is not intervening on behalf of his people. He cries out, God, why won't you do something? And God answers him, doesn't he? God answers and says, I'm going to do something that if someone were to tell you, you would not believe it. It is so mind-boggling. What I am going to do, you wouldn't believe it, though someone told you. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Notice God is not a passenger in this history. He says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I am going to, to bring them up and bring them here, and they will be my instrument of judgment against Judah. Now, as we said, this utterly shocks Habakkuk. He cannot believe that this is what God is going to do. God, how can this be? And, and you may remember he begins to go through some of God's attributes. You are everlasting. You hate sin. You've made promises. I know we shall not die as a people. You've made promises, and yet I cannot reconcile in my own mind, Habakkuk is saying, how a God who is pure and holy could do the very thing you just told me you're going to do. I cried out to you, God, because I live in an age in which evil people prey upon the weak, evil people prey upon the good, evil people prey upon the less evil. And you just told me that your remedy for that is to use a more evil nation than us to do the same to us. Just as the evil and powerful, rich, and corrupt of our country are taking advantage of the poor and weak, so now a more powerful and corrupt nation will take advantage of us. They just get away with it, don't they, God? It always seems to be the way this works. 
the rich and the powerful and the corrupt, they gain and gobble and engorge and enrich themselves at our expense, and there never seems to be a remedy. I was crying out here, God, give us a remedy, and your remedy is more of the same. How can this be just? Now, you may remember that Habakkuk recognizes how far he's pushed things, and we spoke about it in detail last Wednesday night about the, the charge that he's really making here. I mean, he's, he's more or less questioning God. And we might be reminded of the places, uh, one of which is in Romans, where uh, it's quoted, Who are you, O man? Right? Who are you? Who are you, Habakkuk, to question God in his ways and his methods? But that is what he's doing. He's saying, God, I, I don't understand. And I believe he's honest when he says he doesn't understand. He declares that God is righteous and holy, that God is, is great. He doesn't understand how this can be. Well, it's interesting because at the end of that passage, Habakkuk, realizing, I think, that he's gone too far, and this really transitions in the beginning of chapter 2, the very first verse, he says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Now, Habakkuk knows he's gone too far. He knows God will answer him, I believe, and he, but he expects, a, a, I think, a reproof, a correction. Now, God does correct him, but not in a chastising sort of way. God seems to be very patient with Habakkuk, though Habakkuk is questioning him very hard, very hard indeed. So Habakkuk goes and he waits, and we come to tonight's text. We're going to look at just the first four verses of chapter 2 tonight. Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak. And it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. The word of the Lord. Amen. What a great text that is. As we look at it this evening, I want us to look at three quick points. First of all, a key moment in biblical revelation. A key moment in biblical revelation. Second of all, a key principle in biblical salvation. A key principle in biblical salvation. And third, a key text in biblical theology. A key text in biblical theology. So beginning first with this idea of a key moment in biblical revelation. I simply mean by that that this is an important prophecy. This is an important vision. This is an important moment in the revelation of God's message to man through His prophets. The Word tells us that. If you look at the way this is worded, it is clear. When the Lord answers him, He says, Write this vision. Now, the commentators mentioned that in the Old Testament pattern, that when a prophet is given a vision revealed to him by God, that is a message to be communicated to the people. So in other words, this is not a personal answer to Habakkuk. 
Now, it includes, if you will, a personal response to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is being spoken to, and Habakkuk is having his question answered. But this is intended to be a response to the people of God throughout history. This is an important message. This is an important declaration from Almighty God. And so he gives him a vision, an important vision. Another indication that it's a message that is more than for just Habakkuk is the fact that the first thing he tells him to do is what? Write it. Write this. Inscribe it. Inscribe this message, Habakkuk. It's to be recorded and preserved, not just for you, but for future generations. And when I say that, I think not only future generations of Judah, but even for us today, we are reading and studying these recorded words because the prophet obeyed the word and will of God. He inscribed the message, and we receive it even today. And the message speaks to us today. And so again, a vision to be written down, to be inscribed. And notice what he says. Inscribe it on tablets. Now that's, that's really important. If you want to recognize the significance of this revelation, that really sets it up another level. It's not just that God says record this message. It's not just that He tells him to inscribe it. He tells him where to inscribe it. Now other prophets recorded in books and on scrolls. But here, Habakkuk is being told to inscribe this on tablets of stone. Now that in and of itself would be significant to the people of Israel. If you were a person who grew up in Judaism, hearing God declare, inscribe it on tablets of stone would get your attention. But that attention would be proven correct. In other words, that your attention to that point was correct is made evident in what is said there as well. Because he not only says to put it on tablets, he says make it plain on tablets. Now, my friends, in Jewish culture, the Torah was read. It was memorized by many people. And in the Torah, there is something very important said. Deuteronomy 27 and verse 8. And you shall write very plainly on stones all the words of this law. So now you have not only the recording of this message on tablets of stone, but the wording that was used in the Torah for the recording of the law is also given here. Don't just record it on tablets of stone. Don't just inscribe it on tablets of stone. Inscribe it plainly that it may be well read. That it may be easily read. That wording must get your attention. Because there's no way that you wouldn't think about the parallel between this recorded message and the law given on tablets of stone. Now that's even made more evident when you recognize that Jewish scholars even before the Christian era were oftentimes claiming that Habakkuk 2.4 summed up all of the law, what, 613 laws. It summed it up that if you could live by Habakkuk 2.4, you are fulfilling the law. Praise the Lord, that's Paul's argument in Romans, isn't it? So my friends, it was evident even from very early days this was a significant revelation, a significant revelation. It is one that is made abundantly clear in its importance by its connections to Sinai, which was the key moment of revelation as the Jewish people saw it. 
And so we see this is an incredibly important moment. Write it down clearly so that those that are running with the message can proclaim it clearly. As the prophets run and disclose the message, let them do so easily. It should be preserved. Now why should it be preserved? Because it says right here, as we look at at what it says here, it will seem to tarry. It will seem to you to tarry. It has to be written down so that others can hear this revelation, so that they will understand if they feel like, why have these things not yet come to pass? So God answers Habakkuk in this revelatory vision that is symbolically placed at a key moment in the history of Judah and is presented similarly to what is given of the law at Mount Sinai. Now surely this message would capture the attention of all who hear it. God has a major message to reveal. So all of that is to get your attention. All of that should have gotten the attention of uh, the Israelites, of the citizens of Judah. But it's to get their attention so they can hear the message that's coming. And so we've seen this key moment in biblical revelation. We need to realize that it's in service of a key principle in biblical salvation. So there's a key moment recorded here. But there is a message and a principle that is greater than the moment. In other words, the moment sets up the revelation. And the revelation is about biblical salvation. Now before we move to verse 4, which is really the key message that Habakkuk is to write down, I want us to look at what God reveals in verse 3. There are a few principles in this verse that we don't want to miss because they instruct us as to how God is working. First, this vision that is being given to Habakkuk is for an appointed time. In other words, this vision is for the perfectly appointed time of God's planning. It will not happen one moment before that. It will not happen one moment after that. It will happen at the perfect moment. You might think about Galatians 4.4. Paul says there, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, that word for fullness is pleroma. And we've spoken about this many times, that people will say it's like a glass of water being filled to its perfect fullness. Some people will go too far and say the water begins to overflow. That would be not pleroma. It wouldn't be perfectly full. It would be overfull. The point of pleroma is it is perfectly full to the brim. Not one more drop could go in or it overflows. Not one drop less or it's not enough. In the perfect moment, not too soon, not too late, in the perfect moment, God acted. In the perfect moment, God sent forth His Son. Likewise, what the prophet is telling us is, what God actually is telling His prophet to tell us, is that this will happen at the appointed moment. It will happen when it is supposed to happen. It won't happen too early or too late. It will happen at the perfect timing, the time that God has appointed according to His perfect will. It will not happen in our timing, but it will surely come to pass At the end of that period of waiting, it will surely speak, he says. That means it will reveal itself. It will occur as God has said. And it will not lie. It will happen just as God has said it will happen. Every bit of it will happen just as God has promised. The vision will be evident and it will be accurate. Though it tarries, he says, wait for it. Don't give up hope because of a perceived delay. If it's not spoken yet... It's not because it isn't going to happen or that it's in doubt. It hasn't happened yet because it's not the appointed time yet. 
My friends, you want to wrap your mind around how it should work to live a life of faith? Right there's a key. Right there is a key. If something has not happened yet, it's not because God is tarrying Himself. It's not because God has forgotten about it. It's not because God doesn't have the power to do it. It's because it's not yet the appointed time that He has perfectly chosen for that event to take place. If it tarries, be patient. If it tarries, wait. If it tarries, trust. These are principles about all of God's promises. They are given by God, guaranteed by God, fulfilled by God. They happen at the perfect time according to God's perfect will and plan. And we're to trust in that. You know, right now we're going through 1 Thessalonians on Sunday mornings. And in that we're talking about the uh, parousia of Christ, the return of Christ. And there is much discussion and questioning of when that will take place. It hasn't taken place in 2,000 years. When will Christ return? When will that glorious appearing occur? And the answer is this. It will occur in the perfection of God's timing. It will occur at His appointed moment. In the pleroma of that time, of that promise, in the fullness of it, not one second too early, not one second too late. Christ will return when God has appointed Him to return. That is the answer. And so this is true of all of God's promises, isn't it? All of God's promises have a perfect moment of fulfillment and they will happen according to God's plan. So this is really a key principle in biblical salvation, trusting God and His promise. We see that throughout the Scriptures, don't we? Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now that promise was difficult. That promise was not easy in human terms, in a human sense. It was hard to figure out how God would do that. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 4, doesn't he? If you turn there, let's start maybe around 16. Therefore, this is chapter 4, excuse me, verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, what is Paul trying to tell us here? If you want to understand this principle of faith, look at Abraham. Abraham was a man that had no reason to believe this promise in an earthly sense. He was too old to have an offspring. His wife had a, a dead womb, he says. She had no possibility in an earthly sense of bringing forth an offspring. Yet what Abraham knew was the one who had made the promise. Abraham knew that the true God, the living God, 
the all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, all-capable God is the one who had made the promise. And so Abraham knew that he could believe the promise of God. He trusted in God's promise. He trusted that God would do exactly what he said he would do. And because of that faith, it was accounted to him righteousness. In other words, he was given right standing, dikaiosune, to be accounted right with God because of his faith. Now, we see it from that earliest moment that God is working in just this way. It's an important principle in the working of Almighty God as it has pleased God that His promises should not rest on human cunning or human strength, but solely on His grace and His power. Now you see that not only in the story of Abraham, although it's illustrated over and over in the story of Abraham. Think about the entire controversy with, with Abraham's plotting for an heir. First of all, his steward, he wants to be heir, a, a naturalistic approach. Here's one who is not of my loins, but, but God, use him. God says no. And then there's this plot, if you will, that Abraham enters into with Sarah to use Hagar to be the means of uh, bringing forth an offspring, Ishmael. Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might stand before you. In other words, that Ishmael might be my heir. But God says, no, it cannot be Ishmael. Why? Why can't it be Ishmael? Because if it's Ishmael, it's not by the promise of God, but by the cunning and devices of man. And from the very earliest point, God is saying, salvation does not come by the will or effort of man, but only by the grace and promise of Almighty God. And so we see from the very beginning this principle, don't we, of faith. Our faith in God's goodness, His grace, and His promises. You see it throughout the history, don't you? Not only in the time and again, by the way, historically, the purpose of God would seem endangered according to human eyes and human thinking. It's not just that there is an, an heir promised and, and Abraham and Sarah can't have children, but the next generation there is barrenness. And then if you continue on, you've got the story of the patriarchs and how Joseph is thrown into the pit and all seems in jeopardy. And yet all of that action God superintends for good and for His purposes. That's what Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Throughout the history of Israel, do we not see that over and over the promise would be endangered? In fact, if it was up to man, His will, His strength, His mind, the promise would have died over and over again, but God was showing time and again, it's by His grace and His power that His promise will be fulfilled. God delivered Israel. God kept a remnant alive when there was no other hope of preserving the people of God. We see it over and over again. God's preserving the line of David through a remnant, the fulfillment of prophecy in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Over and over, these are God fulfilling His own promise. And you see Habakkuk's question is really larger than even he realizes because at its base, he is speaking about how the world operates, isn't he? He's not just saying in this one example. He's saying over and over again, the powerful gobble up the weak. The corrupt take advantage of the good. The evil take advantage of the less evil. How is it that we're in a world where violence and evil prospers? And God, you seem to do nothing about it. Will this always be the way it is? And the word of the Lord 
the prophecy. The message here is God will not let evil go. He will not let it stand. It will be judged. It will be taken down. The righteous will be vindicated. But it may not be in Habakkuk's time, and it certainly will not be in Habakkuk's way. Because God's ways are not our ways. And so, my friends, that is a message that not only Habakkuk needs to hear, but we need to hear. It will not always be this way. And that is an eschatological issue. Because this really pictures something great, doesn't it? That there is a day when God will right every wrong. There is a day, ultimately, when evil will be judged and righteousness vindicated. But it's not in our time. And it's not in our way. It's in God's timing and in God's way. God, by His grace, will see His plan be fulfilled. But this is more than just a historical principle, isn't it? It's the salvific principle of the Bible. God, by His grace, delivers those who trust in Him. That's the message of verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. You see, there's just two camps pictured here. There's the proud, those who elevate themselves, those who trust in themselves, those who are all about themselves, whose God is themselves. And there are the just, those who trust the Lord, who love the Lord, who desire to bring glory not to themselves, but to the Lord. You see, my friends, we could go into a long exposition on just this, couldn't we? We could go back to Romans chapter 1 and see that Paul presents this there. Right after quoting this very verse, he talks about those who do not desire to give glory to God, they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Instead, they create idols for themselves, that they might create their own God, that they may worship. In other words, they define God, then really they are God. Paul says those sorts of people are not upright. Their soul is not upright in them. Judgment will fall upon them. Now he's speaking primarily about the Chaldeans here. They are a proud people. They are an evil people. Judgment inevitably must fall upon them. But this has larger implications. Because all of humanity is divided right here down this line. Those who trust and worship themselves and those who trust in and worship God. Those that worship and trust God will be saved the just shall live by faith but the proud their soul is not upright in them they will face the judgment of God so we've seen that this is a key moment in biblical revelation and we've seen that this is a key principle in biblical salvation that the just shall live by faith but we also want to see that this is a key text in biblical theology this text is quoted Three times in the New Testament. We know that the author of Hebrews quotes it. And we know that Paul quotes it in Galatians. But Paul most famously and importantly quotes it in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And I want to say for just a moment that it's often been said that Romans is really an exposition and application of Habakkuk 2.4. When that argument is given... They call Romans 1.17 sort of the thesis of the entire letter. I don't think they're wrong on that. I think it is the key text of the letter. And Paul certainly exposits that point and, 
and uses it as the basis for much of his argument on how we are saved, that we are not saved by who we are or our pedigree or what we've done. We are saved by faith and by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, by God's grace alone. But I think the message, the larger picture of Habakkuk, is very much on Paul's mind. Just as in the days of Habakkuk, he looked at his nation in jeopardy, falling under the judgment of God. And the question might be asked, how will God's promise come to fruition? And Habakkuk is told, trust God. Trust God. Trust God's plan. Trust God's purpose. Trust God's timing. Trust God's way. So Paul is speaking to a church in Rome, a church of Jews and Gentiles alike, and they're having issues. But one of the larger questions in the book is found in, in chapters 9 through 11 on how to understand what is happening to the people of Israel. Paul begins by asking what has happened, right, to his kinsmen according to the flesh. Have the promises of God come to no effect? Do they, do they fail to stand? Paul asks. He says no. Paul is thinking very much of Habakkuk as he begins to walk through this and say, listen, the people of Israel are under a severe judgment. Paul says that in that text, doesn't he? That, that there's a blindness that has struck, struck the people. It seems as though God has turned His back on them. But Paul says there are still promises that God has made that He will fulfill. And Paul has some inkling of how it's going to happen that, that the Gentile world is reached so that uh, the Jewish people are, are stoked to jealousy so that then the Gentile world will bring in uh, the Jewish people when the time is right. But ultimately, Paul's hope is not in some human strategy. As Paul lays that out, he's not writing out a roadmap on how to get there. Paul says, I trust in the will of God, the plan of God, the truth of God's word, and the truth of his promises, and I trust his timing, that God will do these things at the right time. So I think Paul's not just expositing Habakkuk. He is using Habakkuk as kind of the backbone of application to the letter. He says, we know God's promises. We know that God is going to glorify all those in Christ Jesus. We know right now it doesn't look good for the people of Israel. But it didn't look good in Habakkuk's day. And yet God said to Habakkuk, trust me. And he said, write down this message on tablets of stone so that in generations to come, if it seems that the promise tarries, they can read it and recognize the truth of what I'm saying, that it will surely come to pass. And God will keep His promises. In fact, God says there it will not tarry. And a lot of people ask, well, how can He say on the one hand, if it tarries, and then say that it will not tarry? I think what He means is this. If it seems to you that it tarries, be patient. But in truth, it cannot tarry because it will happen at the perfect time. It's not delayed in that sense of tarry because it will happen at just the right time. Paul says God is at work now. He is bringing together His people in Christ Jesus of the Jews and of the Gentiles. And right now it appears that the people of God, uh, the Jews, my kinsmen according to the flesh, Paul says, are under judgment. And it looks bad, but God will keep His promise. In the fullness of time, He will do as He's promised to do. 
We can live by our own will, our own thinking, our own empowerment, our own strength, or we can recognize that God is on His throne and we can live by faith in Him and His promises, knowing that His timing is always perfect and His power is always sufficient. And everything that He has promised, He will bring into being at just the right time. Amen.